Before we get started this morning, I have a confession to make. This won't come as a surprise to many of you, but I am not very good at fixing things. I'm going to go ahead and put it out in the open. I'm not very good at fixing things. I know I'm here in a room full of people who are good with their hands, good with tools, kind of a lot of handymen, a lot of people who are really good at fix-it projects. I'm not one of those people. I haven't been blessed with that gift. I haven't been blessed with anything close to that gift. Uh, I need some very specific instructions and very specific guidelines when I'm putting something together. Uh, ben and Anna Summers, Wednesday night, were showing us the furniture uh, that Ben's father had made for their child Avery. And I was looking at that, and what impressed me not only was the furniture, but was the fact that there were no instructions to go with it. He had built it himself. I need something very clear and very specific. And for those who are like me, you know that instructions are good, but we need instructions that don't assume anything. I think I am the reason that most instruction manuals are written on a fifth grade level. Because I need to know, don't assume that I know anything. If I need to use a certain kind of drill bit, don't assume I know what that looks like. If I need a certain kind of, of screws, don't, don't assume that I know which ones those are. I have to have things spelled out very clearly. And I guess that's why I like the verses that we're going to study this morning. I think it's because as Paul is drawing this letter to a close, he gets to some very specific applications they can make in their lives. Now don't get me wrong, Paul wrote very deep texts in Scripture. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 that we read about a few weeks ago that talks about Christ coming and humbling Himself and being obedient, that's one of the richest texts you can find in the entire New Testament. Even Peter would say that Paul wrote some things that were difficult to understand. And I appreciate that because there are things that Paul writes that I find difficult to understand. But at the end of Philippians, we see something that seems to happen at the end of the New Testament letters. And that is, as, as Paul is closing things up, he's wrapping up the letter, he gives some very specific guidelines for them as they live. And so this morning, if we look through these verses and they sound like a very specific checklist, very specific guidelines and instructions, it's because that's what they are. Paul doesn't assume anything. And he lays out exactly what Christians should do in order to obtain, as he called it, the peace of God. You remember as we've gone through the book of Philippians over the past three or four weeks that Paul is writing this from prison. And so Paul is writing this book in his Roman imprisonment and he's writing it to people that are being challenged. They're being persecuted. We don't know the specifics there, but we know that they're in persecution. And so he's writing it to them and he keeps using words like joy and rejoice. And so we've been studying on how we can infuse some of that joy into our own Christian lives, our own Christian journeys. How can we take Paul's advice and put joy in our journey? And you remember in chapter 1, we talked about finding joy in unity. In chapter 2, we talked about finding joy in humility. Chapter 3, joy in knowledge, specifically knowledge of Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, although there are several themes throughout the book, the one I'd like for us to focus on this morning is the peace that Paul talks about in chapter 4. He mentions the peace of God and the God of peace. And you can't have one without the other. And so as we study through this morning, I'd like for us to think about that concept of peace. Peace is something that appeals to all of us. It seems like every time a new year rolls around, there are newspaper ads and there are commercials that we see asking people to work hard for world peace. When we look at our global community, we see all the conflicts that are far off but that affect us at home. 
Peace is something that we long for, that we strive for, even in our own personal lives. We are working hard for peace. In a world that is moving at a faster pace than ever before, there are people who are busier than ever before. Uh, there are more anxieties that face us every day than we've ever faced before, and people are looking for peace. And Paul is telling us that if we want to have a peace that surpasses all human understanding, well, there are some very specific ways to go about putting that peace in our lives. So this morning, I'd like for us to try to, to give peace a chance to reign in our lives, to let the peace of God reign in our lives. And as we do that, we'll look at the very specific statements that Paul makes. And so we'll begin in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. And I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to turn there in your Bibles. I'd really enjoyed this time that we've had to spend together working through the book of Philippians. And I'll also really enjoy having David back with us. I know he misses being here, and we miss having him, and we want to have him back. And so I've enjoyed that. But I've also enjoyed the time that we've spent. And I would challenge you over the next couple of weeks to go back and read through some of the verses that we've had to skip over for lack of time. Read through the entire book of Philippians. There's some very rich material there. And some of that material is found beginning in verse 6, when Paul tells the church at Philippi to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's stop right there for a second. He is telling them to be anxious for nothing. Remember, Paul is writing this from a prison cell. He's from his house arrest. He can't get out of his house by himself. And yet, he's telling them that in order for them to have peace, they need to be able to cast off all their anxieties. Not to be anxious about anything. The church was being persecuted, and Paul is telling them, don't be anxious. I read a research report that claims that 92% of what we worry about on a day-to-day -day basis, 92% of that are events or occurrences that will not take place. In other words, if you think about all the time we worry, 92% of that time we're worrying about things that aren't going to happen. Only 8% of what we worry about actually takes place, actually faces us on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we think about all of the subjects that seem to occupy our anxieties and our worries, only 8% of those are really worth worrying about. 92% aren't even going to take place. And so it's a pretty powerful message for us to look at what Paul says, to cast off all our anxiety. And so Paul, how am I going to cast off all my anxiety? He gives some very specific guidelines. First of all, he mentions prayer. If I'm going to let the peace of God rule in my life, I'm going to have to learn how to pray God's way. Prayer is a challenging topic for us, isn't it? I would imagine that if I were to ask the group of us here who thought that they could use some improvement in their prayer life, if we were all to have a show of hands, I would imagine almost all of us would raise our hands. Prayer life is challenging for a Christian. And so, once again, Paul spells out three different aspects of prayer. And this is another evidence of the fact that I think Paul was a great preacher. He had three points. Not only is he talking about prayer, but there are three specific areas of prayer that he's going to list. And so the first thing that he lists when looking at prayer is that one phrase, two simple words that are so important, in everything. So as Paul is speaking about prayer, he says, first of all, pray in everything, at every time in your life. Paul was no stranger to praying in everything. You might remember in Acts chapter 16 when Paul first visited Philippi, he was put in prison. And you remember Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail cell as it was on into the late hours of the evening and the early hours of the morning. What were they doing? 
They were singing and they were praying. Paul knew what it meant to pray in every circumstance. We even see Jesus live that out as He's on earth. Do you know what happened right after Jesus fed the 5,000 with those few loaves and fishes? He went off by Himself for a time of prayer, a time to be with His Father. And do you know what happened right before He was betrayed, before He was led through the mockery of a trial, and before He was crucified? He went to the garden for some time in prayer. Jesus modeled for us what it means to pray at our high points and at our low points. On His spiritual highs, He was spending time with God, and in His spiritual lows, He was spending time with God. And so for you and I, that means that we never get so successful, we forget who blessed us with that success, and we forget to thank God and to honor Him, and we never get so low that we try to dig ourselves out and try to work ourselves out of that hole without going to our Father. Paul tells the Philippians they should pray in everything. It should be all through their life. If I want to have peace, I have to pray in everything. And also, Paul uses a word in that next phrase, mentioning with prayer and supplication. Now, the word supplication is another word that you and I would think of as a petition. When someone petitions someone else with a request or a desire, we get kind of a sense of what supplication would be. Paul is telling the Philippians, you can bring your petitions, you can bring your needs and your desires before the Lord. Now that sounds simple enough. And so you wonder why you would have to tell a group of Christians that you are allowed in prayer to bring your petitions before the Lord. As we think about that, I want us to ask a question. Do we pray, do we bring our petitions before the Lord with full assurance that He hears us and that He will answer those prayers? I like the story of the fourth grade Bible class that was putting together some letters to send a missionary. And so the teacher sat down all 20 of her students in fourth grade and they were excited about writing these letters. And she said, now I want you to know that Brother Johnson, who we support, is a very busy man. And chances are, if he receives 20 letters, he's not going to be able to respond to each one of you individually. And so they all nodded very gravely. They understood this was important. This was an important man. And so uh, little Tommy gets down and he gets his pencil and you can imagine his fourth grade handwriting. And he's, he says, Dear Brother Johnson, we are all praying for you, but we don't expect a response. I wonder how many times that's true in our lives. How many times do we pray but don't really expect a response? Well, I'll pray about this problem, but it's pretty difficult. I mean, I don't expect anything to really happen, but I'll pray about it. Or I'll pray about this situation, not that I'll be looking for any results or any answer to that prayer, but I'll go ahead and, and give that petition up. I think it's so important that Paul mentions prayer because Paul understood what it was like to make those petitions and to receive an answer different than what he wanted. In the end, isn't that what frustrates us so much with prayer? that the answers are different than what we think they should be? Now, there were several examples in Paul's life where we see that, but I'd like for us to focus on just one. You remember that Paul is writing this while he's in house arrest in Rome. He's writing the letter to the Philippians. Now, if we think about Paul being in Rome, house arrest, writing the letter, let's rewind to years earlier when he writes the book of Romans. If you would turn with me, it's page 999 in your pew Bibles, but it's the first chapter of Romans. I want us to notice something here as Paul is writing this group of people whom he has not personally seen or visited. He says right in the beginning of, of the first chapter of the book, in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way 
and the will of God to come to you. So Paul wants to come to Rome. He wants to do it in the will of God, but he wants to come to Rome. And then go down a few more verses in verse 15. He makes that statement. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul is ready to preach, and he's ready to preach in Rome, and that's where he wants to go. And even in chapter 15 of Romans, he talks about his desire to visit there. Now let me ask you a question. As he's praying that God would allow him to visit Rome, do you think he ever imagined the circumstances that he would be in when he actually made it to Rome? Do you think he imagined the imprisonments that he imagined the long voyage with all of the storms and the shipwreck and being bitten by snakes and all the things that happened to them as they made their way to Rome. And, and the end of the book of Acts, we see him in his Roman house arrest. Do you think Paul had all those in mind when he said, I want to visit Rome? Paul wanted to preach. He wanted to preach the gospel. But God sent him to Rome, probably in a different way than he would have expected. And Paul did preach in Rome. He did spread God's word. But you know what else he did? He wrote the book of Philippians. The book of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, these are books that we believe he wrote in his Roman imprisonment. And so Paul is writing these very special books that we have kept for years since then, that have blessed the church for years to come. Now let me ask you, which would have been more effective in the long run? For Paul to go to Rome and to, to speak for three or four weeks to certain specific individuals or to write letters that would last far beyond his lifetime? Often God has different things in mind than we might expect. One poet put it this way. When the request is wrong, God says no. When the individual isn't right, God says grow. When the timing isn't right, God says slow. But when everything is right, God says go. And Paul knew what it meant to get the grow response, to get the no response, to get the slow response. And now, even in a different way than he expected, he's getting the go response in his journey to Rome. I wonder how many times we pray and don't expect a response. We have to pray in everything. We have to pray by supplication. And if we could, let's go down a, a couple of other slides and focus on the third aspect of praying God's way. We need to pray with thanksgiving. Did you notice how Paul threw that in there? With thanksgiving. As we look through the Old Testament, how many times do we see God reminding the Israelites who He was? How many times do we see God saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt? And we might ask ourselves, well, they would know that, surely. Why would God keep telling them that over and over again? Well, every time they forgot what God had done for them, they were tempted to slip into idolatry. Have you noticed that the first step on the road of replacing God with an idol or replacing God with something else is forgetting what God has done for you? And that's why gratitude is so important to Paul. He says you pray and be thankful for what God has done because that will remind you who's really in charge. I want to leave a challenge with you as we move through this passage. I want you sometime this week to sit down and try to pray without once asking God for anything. Not once asking Him, although we can, Paul tells us we can petition Him, but focus the prayer on thanksgiving. Try to think of as many different things to be thankful for and to thank God for. As many ways you can show your gratitude to God. I think we'll be amazed if we focus on showing our thanksgiving to God, how much He's actually done for us. And so Paul tells us if we're going to let the peace of God reign in our lives, first of all, we have to pray God's way. And then notice what comes next. Notice what happens in verse 8. Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, 
whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. We have to pray God's way and we have to think God's way. If we want to live a life filled with the peace of God, we have to think about thoughts that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy. We've probably all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. And in a society that is enamored with health trends and with diets, we know very well that what we decide to eat affects how we're going to feel and how we're going to look weeks, months, even years from now. But have you ever thought about the spiritual application of that principle? Whatever we decide to put in, in our minds, whatever we decide to put in our hearts and focus on will determine who we are weeks and months and years from now. The decisions we make today of what we're going to think about and of what we're going to let dwell inside our hearts and our minds, that's going to affect who we are spiritually in the weeks and months and years to come. Now that's a pretty challenging thought if you think about it. It's also an exciting one because you and I don't have to stay where we are. If we focus on things that meet these qualifications, that possess these qualities, then we can build ourselves into someone better off spiritually than we are today. We can grow spiritually, but we have to focus on meditating and thinking about those things. As we look at these words that Paul uses here, what do all of these characteristics have in common? To be true, noble, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy. What do all of these have in common? I think there's one specific trait that each one possesses. And we can illustrate that by flipping back in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms. Specifically the 19th Psalm. If you would turn there with me, the Psalms 19 verses 7 through 9. That's page 489 in your pew Bibles. Psalms 19 verses 7 and 9. The Psalm of David as he speaks of the law of the Lord. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now look at those words that are used here. Words like true, right, righteous, pure. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds exactly like the qualities that Paul is listing here of what we should focus on. So if you and I want to find something to focus on in life that is going to possess all these qualities, there is no better place to start with than the Word of God. There is no better place to start with than the law of the Lord. In fact, in the very first psalm, in verse 2, they would talk about a blessed man, and the writer speaks of a blessed man as one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So if you and I want to meditate on these kinds of thoughts, there's no better place to start with than the law of God. But it's important for us to notice that the word think used here doesn't quite capture in English what Paul was really indicating. It wasn't just a, a think, I'm going to train my mind on this for a few minutes during a day. The thought behind this, this phrase here to talk about thinking on these things, to meditate on these things, indicates a bringing to one's remembrance, a focused consideration. I like what one translator said, that we should give these factors weight in all of our decisions. We need to give weight to each one of these factors in every decision we make. And so as you and I face a decision, one of the tests that we can do is to look back through these factors and to say, well, what would be true? What would be noble? What would be the just or the pure or the lovely or the virtuous or praiseworthy way to handle this? And so if I'm facing the possibility of, of indulging in some impure thoughts, I have to ask myself the question, does it meet these qualifications? If I'm going to make this choice with my life, I have to ask myself the question, am I weighing these factors? Does it meet these qualifications? 
And it's amazing what changes can happen in our life when we focus on these qualities. And so we have to pray God's way. We have to think God's way. And Paul also ends with a very practical application in verse 9. Paul gets down to business in verse 9 and says, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Not only do we have to pray God's way and think God's way, we have to live God's way. At some point, the discussion of all these qualities has to leave the mind and enter into the heart and determine the way we act every day of our lives. I remember just a couple of years ago, there was a woman who attended church here. She was a mother with children. She has since moved. But I remember a conversation as we were standing around the foyer one day. She had never been to church before. She hadn't been a Christian And so as she was talking to myself and some others around us, she said, you know, this is the first time I ever realized that what you talked about on Sunday was supposed to affect how you lived Monday through Saturday. She said, I'd never stopped to think that what you talked about in church was actually supposed to be used in your life. I think that's a pretty powerful statement because it's easy to forget that. It's easy to leave all of this discussion in the realm of the intellect and never let it, let, it, let it trickle down into our actions, never let it affect how we live. And so Paul knew, even after writing this beautiful chapters to the Philippians, he knew that if they were to walk away from this letter, if they were to read it out loud in the assembly and then all go home and, dis- and forget about it as if they were looking in a mirror and then walk away and forget what they look like, another image Paul would use in the book of 1 Corinthians, if they were to look at the law of the Lord and forget about it and not let it affect their lives, then what Paul had done up to this point would be useless. It wouldn't change anything. You see, we don't need just to be informed. We need to be transformed by what we're told. We don't need just information. We need that information to cause a transformation in our lives, to turn ourselves around. And that's exactly what Paul is wanting the Philippians to do. The things that you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, now do them. I mean, he's spelling it out for them very plainly. Have you ever been walking through the mall and you've come upon a salesman? Maybe even you're going through a department store and someone has the latest product that they're trying to sell you and you get caught up and you don't even mean to, but you get caught up in a sales pitch. That's happened to me several times. You've made eye contact for too long, you've lingered too long, and they start trying to, to give you their routine. And they'll go through and they'll tell you what the price is and why this price is better than anywhere else. What their product does and why that product is better than any other one. And you just get that feeling where, if I can just make it through this without buying anything, that'll be a victory. Have you ever been there before? If I can just get through this sales pitch and not buy anything, that'll be a victory. I wonder, I, I just wonder how tempting it is for us to approach Bible classes and worship times with the feeling of, well, I'll read God's Word, but boy, if I can get out without having to change my life, that'll be accomplishing something. You know, we we preached, and Paul talked about about praying today, but I got out without feeling guilty or making any changes, so I'm feeling pretty good. I'm ready to go the rest of the week. Or we talked about the kind of thoughts we should have, but I got out, and I don't feel guilty about it, and I, I didn't stop to really consider my life, so I'm feeling pretty good. I can live the rest of the week just as I had before. Paul is saying, don't have that kind of attitude when you're coming into contact with God's truth. Do these things. Apply these things in your life. To a church that's being persecuted for being a Christian, Paul says, do these things. Don't let persecution or worries or fears or anxieties stop you from living out the truth that you've been given. Do you know the temptation is just as real for us as it was for them? We can come to God's Word 
We can read what He has for us. And we can be hearers of the Word, but not doers. James would describe the two categories of people as hearers only and then doers of the Word. And he would say, be doers of the Word. Not just hearers, not just people who sit down and let the information run in one ear and out the other. And that temptation is very real for us. Our society doesn't necessarily encourage living a godly life. And so if we tune out the words of the Lord, chances are we're not going to get them from any other source. And it could be easy to leave here, to live just the same way we did before we walked in the doors this morning. I want to encourage us to consider Paul's challenge. To, to increase our prayer life, to purify our thought life, and also to change our everyday life. And so as we leave here this morning, I want all of us to think about how we're going to live differently because of what we've read. How are we going to apply this? I heard one preacher say that he always tries to end his lessons with the YBH test. YBH stands for yeah, but how? We've read beautiful scriptures, but how do we live them out in our lives? Something I want all of us to consider as we look at the beautiful words of Paul. Paul's given us recipe for joy. He talks about the peace of God and the God of peace, but you can't have one without the other. And as we look at the words Paul has written for us today, let's not leave here and forget about them. Let's not leave here and tune out the message that God has given us and decide to tune in to whatever's going on around us. Let's follow Paul's advice. We've heard... Paul's word. We've, we've learned what he said. We've received it. Uh, we've seen throughout reading about his life how that's affected him. We've seen throughout the New Testament how that life can affect us. We've learned, received, heard, and seen all of that. Now let's do it. Let's take what we've learned and let's apply that in our lives. Depending on where we are in life, that'll mean different things for each one of us. And it may be that you've made that decision to be a Christian just as Paul had done, just as the Philippians had done. But it could be that you've been challenged to think about your prayer life. Maybe your thought life. Maybe your regular life. Your day-to-day -day life. Or it could be that you've lived through all three of those. You might not have had a prayer life, might not have considered your thought life, and might not have really thought about your regular everyday life until this morning when confronted by the words of this text. Wherever we are, each one of us has a great deal to think about. And if you want to take this opportunity this morning to do what Paul has laid out, if you want to turn your life around to become a Christian, to put Christ on in baptism and begin walking with Him in a life that, that is filled with prayer and that is filled with pure thoughts and that is filled with a Christian everyday walk with God and ultimately will lead to a life of peace, if you want to make that decision today, there's no better time than right now. It might not be the last chance but there's no better opportunity than right now in a room full of Christians who are just longing to help, longing to do what we can, and a group of people who would like nothing better than to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that can happen today. If there's any way that this congregation here can be of any assistance, as we sing this song, we ask that you would come forward and make that need known. As we think about Paul's words, they challenge us. He talked about the peace of God, but we can't have the peace of God without knowing the God of peace. And if you want to come to the God of peace, please do that now as we stand and sing together.